Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter six, talons and tea leaves. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered the great hall for breakfast the next day, the first thing they saw was Draco Malfoy who seemed to be entertaining a large group of Slytherins with a very funny story. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, I can hardly contain myself because live from Pemberley, our latest season of Hot and Bothered, where we are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, just launched. And I don't want to say that it's so good, but... It's really good. It's really good. Well, I'm, I will say this with full prejudice that you must be very proud <laughs> of this podcast. It's, it really is as good as you say it is because it's based upon a great novel and it has great people talking about it. And I, it just really is interesting to think through why this is such a cultural phenomenon. Obviously, it's a work of genius, but why Pride and Prejudice, right? 200 plus years later. Anyway, Great conversations. Everyone go subscribe to Hot and Bothered. We also just want to tell you all that I am recording at 6 a.m. Pacific after only three hours of sleep. So there are going to be amazing bloopers today. <laughs> so it's a great inspiration to go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text and make sure that you don't miss those bloopers. Well, Matt, you have a story for us today on the theme of joy. What story do you have for us? So like any normal human being, I've had times of stress and challenge and trial in my life. And one of the most stressful times in my life was my first semester teaching at Harvard. And there were lots of reasons that went into it. I had been a PhD student at Harvard and kind of transition to the faculty was really difficult for me just because my relationships with all my faculty colleagues changed pretty abruptly. This is not unique, and I'm not asking anyone to feel sorry for me, but there's lots of pressure for junior faculty at Harvard to really publish and produce while doing all their teaching and committee work. And I was still working in ministry at the church that I'd served, and I had about a two and a half hour commute to get back and forth to Harvard. So five hours total. Five hours total. Yep. And also, I had a two and a half year old, a one year old, and my lovely wife, Colette, was pregnant with our third child, Danny. And it was a very, very stressful time. So stressful, in fact, that I ground my teeth so hard sleeping that I broke one of my teeth, right? I had to get an implant because I was so stressed out. But I also remember this time as a time when I had a feeling of of great fulfillment. And like, this is not to to mitigate my sense of 
stress or challenge during that time. But when I reflect upon it, and even at the time, I remember feeling a sense of fulfillment and contentment. I remember, you know, I lived on Cape Cod. I remember going for a run along the ocean and just feeling kind of full of something like joy, right? Even though while I was running, everything else I was thinking about was causing me a lot of stress. And I also remember, and this was at the end of the semester, my son Danny was born right around Christmas. And I remember we were running back and forth, you know, I was trying to take care of a two-and-a-half-year-old and a one-year-old while Clut was in the hospital with our, our newborn. And I remember taking the kids to visit Danny and their mom and then driving them home in our, you know, our used Camry. And I remember Sam and Cammie in the back seat just start singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing with all the wrong words and, you know, because they're two-and-a-half and one. And me just, like, belting it out, like, barreling down the highway right around Christmas after dark, just singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it didn't, the thing that was just interesting about it, and I knew this at the time, and I feel it reflecting upon it as well, was that none of that stuff lessened any of the stress I was feeling. I still broke my tooth. But there was also this deep kind of well of something like joy inside me. So one of the things I want to think about with this chapter or think about as we think about joy is what's the relationship between joy and happiness, right? I think I think you can't never be happy. I think if you're if if you have no happiness, it's hard to feel joy. So I don't want to I don't want to say that they're entirely unrelated. But I also think that you can be unhappy while still feeling joy. Like you can be going through something which you know mm-hmm. is maybe temporary or something hard or challenging, a trial which is real, which feels stressful and difficult, while still feeling great joy. And one of the things I want to really investigate here is the relationship between between something deeper called joy and something maybe more superficial called called happiness. But I don't want to, again, I don't want to draw that distinction too starkly because I think joy and happiness are related. If you can't feel happiness, it's hard to feel joy. And that's my story and that's my question. It's a beautiful story. I mean, there's a there's a book that came out a couple of years ago by Jennifer Senior called All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern mm. Parenthood. I think that title is pointing towards the same kind of question that I'm raising. But I also want to ask Harry Potter to help us think more deeply about what the relationship between something like fun or happiness is to something more sustaining like joy. Yeah. Well, that is a beautiful story. I love thinking about little Danny being born. Vanessa, it is your turn to start with a 30-second recap. Are you ready? I am. Can I count you in? Please. Three, two, one, go. So they get their course descriptions, and Hermione's is like, class, 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 class. And Ron is like, that's not how time works. And she's like, mind your own business. And then they go up for divination, and it's a little wonky up there. And Professor Trelawney is like, oh, sorry, Harry, you're going to die. And then Professor McGonagall is like, Harry, you're definitely not going to die ever. You're going to live forever. And then they go to Hagrid's class, and Buckbeak attacks Malfoy and Malfoy yells, I'm dying, I'm dying. And then they go down to Hagrid's hut. Great job, Vanessa. I am. Thank you. I'm dying. (laughs) I like what you focused on. I like where you placed your emphasis. (laughs) I think it's so funny that that's what he yells. Matt, it is your turn. Are you ready? No, I'm not. Three, two, one, go. So Harry wakes up from breakfast. He's very embarrassed. He goes to breakfast and he's getting made fun of and he doesn't like it. And Hermione has a bunch of classes. And so Ron says, you can't do that. And she says, yes, we can. And they go to the first class, which is divination. And Trelawney is making lots of predictions. And she um, and she says, she sees a Grimm and Harry, you're going to die. And Harry's very freaked out because he did see a Grimm. And then they go to McGonagall's transfiguration. She says, you're not going to die. And then they go to Hagrid's and, and Harry rides the hippogriff, but the hippogriff bites Malfoy and that's bad. And Hagrid's depressed. And they go to Hagrid's hut and comfort him. And he's drunk and he says, get out of here. Ugh, love being on the same team as you, Matthew Potts. Me too. I like being on a team with you also. So Matt, to me, the joy moment in this chapter that is most obvious is Hagrid's excitement and contentment and thrill at the idea of teaching. He goes into the Great Hall and he's like, y'all are in my first class trio It's going to be amazing. Me, a teacher, can you believe it? And what is so interesting is the joy of anticipating is so different than not just his experience because it goes poorly, but his experience just once the students arrive, right? When when the nerves hit. Yeah. 
And I found that interesting because I think that that's often the case, that part of what's joyful about an event is the looking forward to it, right? People will talk about how silly it is to spend all that money on a wedding that's just one day. And I'm like, it's not just one day. It's months of looking forward to it, and it's years of looking back on it. And I truly believe that joy doesn't have to just be in the moment, that a memory or a looking forward can create that same sense of joy. Yeah, I think that that, what a great definition of joy you just gave, like excitement, contentment, and thrill, right? Because Hagrid's actual menial tasks are not joyful. Like he got up at 5 a.m. because he's anxious, right? And he's stressed out and planning. And in the moment when people show up, he's nervous. And it he probably cracked a tooth. Yeah, right. That's right. He probably did. Like he's he's not having fun necessarily while this is going on. But there is like excitement and contentment and thrill underneath. And it makes me wonder if like reading this chapter is why I thought of the story I thought of, because I'm sure that's exactly what I was feeling in my first semester at Digital Harvard. Like I felt like I felt like Hagrid being like called up to the show, like to, to teach at this <laughs> school that I respect and admire so much. And it that stressed me out a lot because it was full of excitement and contentment and thrill that I that I wanted it to live up to, that I wanted to be all the things that it meant to me. But that also meant that I was working hard and stressed out and getting up too early and staying up too late, which is all the things that, that Hagrid's doing. So yeah, to me, that was the, the clearest example of joy in this chapter also, and maybe is what occasioned my own story. You know, all this is really interesting, especially because to me, Hagrid is such an obvious example of joy which doesn't feel fun or happy yeah because you know when i look to the etymology of joy you know let's take our little trip to etymology corner with matt the etymology of joy is not super helpful in this regard it's it's much (laughs) it's much more flat it's much more superficial like joy just means like happiness right it it comes from (laughs) a, a latin word gaudete which means rejoice right which means like celebrate or laud right but even the word gaudy comes from the same root. So there's a sense oh. of like like superficial happiness to it, possibly, like of feeling good, feeling happy, right? And that that's not what I was feeling that semester. And it's not what Hagrid is feeling either. But, you know, I defy anyone to say that Hagrid doesn't have some joy in him when he's walking into breakfast that morning. Now, later on in the chapter, right. you know, he doesn't feel joy. So maybe this is... Again, where it raises the question about, okay, how much happiness do you need to feel feel joy? Because at the end of the chapter, he's feeling something else. Well, and I think that the fact that he felt joy earlier in the day does add to the despair later, which is interesting to me, right? So Hagrid is teaching his first lesson and he is like, go big or go home, Hagrid. So we're, we're doing hippogriffs. And it is a bold move, and I love it. I'm like, yes, you go there. Especially because he teaches them in such a step-by-step way, whether or not I would then have Harry fly. But the bowing, I'm so into. And then it goes so poorly, right? And and I agree with Hermione's assertion that it is Draco's fault. Haggard explained very clearly that hippogriffs need to feel respected. And Draco blatantly disrespects this creature. And so it attacks him, which, you know, buckbeak violence is not the answer. So this just goes so poorly. And like I said in my 30-second recap, Draco lies on the floor saying he's dying. And I do think that I'm projecting. But part of what would be so hard about it for me was the expectation being so high would add to a sense of humiliation for me or embarrassment of like, I was bragging that this was going to go well and I fell flat on my face. And so I, what I hate about that is that the joy, you look back on the joy as naivete or actually, right? Like something worse than that is like arrogance or, you know, it it's amazing how a bad outcome can retroactively sap joy out of something. Yeah, that is really, that is a good question. I mean, one of the things I've been reflecting upon with Hagrid at the end of the chapter, it's clear that whatever joy he had, he loses. And I want to say a few more words about that. But like, what is he feeling at the end of the chapter? You use the word despair, and I think that's that's the word that I want to use as well. But I think about despair as like the opposite of hope. We talked about hope in a recent mm-hmm. episode. And if despair is the opposite of hope, then it's not quite the opposite of joy. But also, 
it's not quite sadness because I've been trying to distinguish joy from happiness, right? There's something, what is the opposite of contentment, excitement, and thrill, right? It, it's something like disappointment and dereliction and rejection or humiliation, like all the things that I'm not sure we have yeah. a word that captures it. But I think that you're right. That is what's going on. And it also makes me just want to sort of, I want Haggard to forgive himself a little bit, right? Because totally. Tisa, and this might be my own projection again of thinking of myself in my first semester teaching, like Haggard, you're an inexperienced teacher. You haven't done this before. I mean, next time you bring out the hippogriffs, you'll probably have the students approach one at a time rather than having one approach and then the whole class do it at the same time, right? So you can have a little <laughs> bit more control. But that is his enthusiasm. All the things that could potentially make him a great teacher, his his care for these creatures, his care for the students, his explicit and clear instructions, right? He will learn after he makes some mistakes to figure out how to implement those things in a more safe way. So even jerks and idiots like Malfoy don't get hurt, right? Because it's his responsibility to protect jerks and idiots as well. Yeah. I want him to still feel joy by saying, all is not lost. This was a good idea. I just have to be honest about where I am, which is I'm not there yet. This is my first day. I'm still learning and I have to, to grow from this. It seems to me that it's really important that a person keep feeling some sense of joy because that gives them some resilience. That gives them a sense that, okay, I can do this again, try again and do it differently next time. I am capable of learning from this mistake and moving forward because to just give up and say all is lost would mean for him to stop. And I don't think that's the right choice for, for Hagrid either. Yeah. I mean, to me, again, this is a structural problem with Hogwarts and a bigger structural problem with the fact that Hagrid has the opportunity to retreat, like, partially off campus. If he had to go to the faculty room and talk to McGonagall, McGonagall would be like, oh, my God, the first day I taught, I had the kids, you know, transfigure, you know, boxes into sewing machines. And now I just have them turn them into needles because, right. boy, did that go poorly, right? And and so I, through community, I feel like we can do some of that meaning-making and processing to get a little bit of that joy back. And that's actually when people tell funny stories of their own yeah. humiliations because they have some perspective on them. And they feel like we can buoy each other through those disappointments. And yeah. the problem with Hagrid, right, like, is he goes down to his hut and drowns his sorrows in alcohol, which is completely understandable given that he is utterly isolated. Yeah. Right? Like, the only way you have to take care of yourself, there there aren't joyful options. Because you're not going to talk to, you know, Professor Sprout about how she didn't make clear the first year that everyone needed to wear their earmuffs. And so half the class fainted from mandrakes. Right. And that that's why Madame Pomfrey's on campus. Yeah, right. Right. That's a great observation, Vanessa. And it makes me want to make a hot take. You let me let me know what you think about this. Oh, no, I can't wait. I'm not even sure it's true, but I just want to throw it out there and see what you think. Is it possible that joy is social and happiness is individual? I was wondering about that, too. I think this is why the trio go to Hagrid's hut, right? The response to his sadness at how bad things went is to try to restore some joy to say, like, we believe in you. It was Malfoy's fault. This is why Madame Pomfrey's here. She can fix it. No problem. Worst things happen to me on the Quidditch pitch, like, oh, right? Like, to just kind of put things into perspective. I, ideally, as you say, there's a structural issue here that should not be students providing this for Haggard. It should be other faculty members. Right. But, like, I wonder if that's one way we can think about how joy operates. Because I also think about, again, reflecting upon my own story and using Haggard to reflect upon my own story. My first term teaching it at Harvard, I felt a little bit. I think like Hagrid, which is like, I'm glad that they offered me the spot. I'm pretty sure I don't belong here, but I'm excited to make the mm -hmm. best of it and to try to, to stay here as long as I can. And so when things went poorly, it would just confirm the fears I had that, oh, yeah, I don't belong yeah. here and I'm not going to stick around. Right. But that the response where I felt joy was with, you know, students like yourself who I really admired and enjoyed working with or with my kids in the back seat singing Ark the Herald Angels Sing, driving home in the middle of the night. Like those are the places where I was able to kind of wrestle with the feelings of uncertainty or inadequacy or whatever, and through those social supports, continue to feel something like joy, which allowed me to be resilient when I was disappointed or when I did things poorly. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about moments where I have felt something near joy by myself, right? Like climbing a mountain by myself. Interesting. Yeah. And like I and I think that it's not quite joy, right? It's mm. awe for the beauty. It's a little bit of pride that I did it, right? Like if I when I was a good runner, like beat my own time goal, right? Like I don't think that that was joy, right? Sure. Whereas a race finishing with other people was joyful. Sure. So I do think that there's something about the social aspect. My cousins and I are estranged from one another, and we haven't spoken since my grandfather's funeral. But I remember at my the Shiva after my grandfather's funeral, we were telling stories about him and laughing so hard. My grandfather was a very irresponsible babysitter and encouraged lying to the parents in his babysitting. And just the joy that we had in remembering him and in being together remembering him, right? Even though it was this like overall sad experience, it just makes me think that, right? Like the laughter that you hear in hospital rooms, right? Like you yeah. can find joy in community in almost any situation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think that this idea of community, I think, is important because I think social is a right word, maybe an inadequate word for how joy is stirred up in us. Because, you know, I think about a situation where I might have climbed a mountain by myself or whatever. Not a big mountain. I'm not much of a climber. But, you know. No, me neither. A hill. Yeah, a hill. And I think there is a relationship between awe and joy. They're not the same thing. But also there's something about looking down on on a beautiful landscape where you feel connection, right? I, I don't know about you, but like on hikes like that, I'm often thinking about people I care about or relationships on the way up, right. right? And you get to the top and you look down, you feel connected to the world in a different way. Like there is something about awe or is something about feeling that connection, which does stir up something different. And also, I think this also helps to take us to another point in the chapter that I wanted to think about, which is when Harry first walks into the Great Hall. And the Slytherins are laughing at him, right? Like, they're very happy. Their laughter laughter is at least a superficial happiness. I think maybe deep down Malfoy's not happy, right? But in that moment, they are happy. But their laughter is not joyful. Their laughter is maybe gleeful, right? Like, it's not joyful. And I think the reason is because what their laughter is doing, what their happiness is doing, is rather than building a bond or relationship with Harry or with others, they're establishing, like, a division, between them and Harry. They're building bonds with each other, right? But because it's not more expansive, because it doesn't reach out and make connection, maybe that's why I have trouble describing it as a joyful laughter. It's it's gleeful or it's, I don't know, I mean, it, gleeful, mirthful. I don't know. There are other words that are associated with happiness, but just don't carry the same depth as joy, right? Right. I do think that joy is purer than that. And if there's something mean or spiteful in your joy... I would like to think it diminishes your joy. Yeah. Or at least that joy has its limits, right? And those limits are located at the point where joy becomes tribal or exclusive. Right. I think, you know, a a very charming moment in the chapter to me is when McGonagall a little bit gets to trash talk Trelawney. They go to Transfiguration and, you know, McGonagall does this great Transfiguration and there's no applause. And she's like, uh, hi, this is the first time ever that I haven't gotten applause for that. What I just did was awesome. And the kids are like, uh, we just came from Transfiguration I do think that McGonagall potentially feels joy in that moment where she's like, I can take care of all of you right now by making this a joke, right? And there's something joyful about being like, I know this school so well. I know Trelawney so well. I know students so well that I can be like, okay, who'd she say was going to die this time? And make a little bit of a joke about it. And I I guess I'm, I'm just questioning whether or not Joy has to be pure because I do think there can be some joy in gossiping. I am just like wondering if there's a little bit of joy that she is an excuse to trash talk Trelawney. And I'm wondering if there's like a limit to that, right? Because then she's going to go back and be like, that was unprofessional. I really hate divination and I want the students to know that it's bogus. And I love that I had an excuse of like caretaking to trash talk Trelawney. 
but it seems yeah. like a gross version of joy, right? It's schadenfreude, taking pleasure in other people's pain. But sometimes it is kind of joyful. That's partly right. But I also think that we don't need to apologize for joy in that regard because, I mean, nothing's pure. I think the belief that anything can be pure is the dangerous thing because then we don't look at our own. Like, if you felt like your own joy was pure, then you might not be alive or alert to the little corners where it maybe does point towards tribalism or exclusivism or celebrate the suffering of others. And what we need to do is instead be able to look kind of squarely at the things which do give us joy or do fill us up, but also ask the hard questions, which is like, what are the limits of this? Where does this start to fall apart? Who is this feeling not serving? So we can expand the reach of those states. And I think the thing about something like joy is it has the resources and capacity to weather that critique, right? Like, I think you have real joy, then you can look squarely at yourself and at the limits and acknowledge them and then try to grow beyond them, right? Rather right. than it kind of collapsing. I think, you know, I think that the the Slytherin version of it here, which, they're, you know, as you're saying, there's probably some real friendship building and therefore real joy in the way they tease Harry, but it, it's not super strong. I don't think it can weather much. And you can see people later on in the series starting to betray each other because those friendships aren't real deep and strong, because the joy is not strong enough to kind of weather the, the recognition of the limits of those, of those feelings. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This idea of joy as social makes me think about the Dementors. At the beginning of this chapter, Harry comes in at breakfast and he's being ridiculed by the Slytherins and he feels a lot of shame for having passed out before the Dementor. And George is like, don't worry about it. I mean, the Dementors are really terrible Creatures, this is what happened to our dad, who we all respect when he had to go to Azkaban. And then George says, they suck all of the happiness out of a place, Dementors, as a way to comfort Harry, right? And I'm thinking about Azkaban and the way, you know, just your characterization of sort of isolation, of Hagrid's isolation. I mean, this is really the kind of carceral strategy of Azkaban, right? Is to get people entirely and absolutely alone with no social connections to anybody else, right? Everybody's in solitary confinement. And that's the situation where one is most capable, it seems like, of eliminating joy by sucking happiness out. If people have no connections and you take away all possibility of their delight, then they're lost, right? Which is exactly what makes the Dementors so terrifying. That's also the policy of our carceral system. That's why prisons are in the middle of nowhere. It absolutely is. Yep. Matt, I don't know if this is joy in the chapter, but it brought me a tremendous amount of joy. I think Seamus Finnegan and Dean Thomas really shine in this chapter. Dean Thomas, like, pops in and is like, it isn't, it isn't Hagrid's fault. It's no 
Malfoy's fault, right? Like, it, he's just, yeah. like, there in the background advocating. I'm like, I love you, Dean. And then the, the real moment of joy for me is when Seamus Finnegan goes, it looks like a grim, but his eyes are closed. He's like, let me read you the exact quote. It looks like a grim if you do this, he said, with his eyes almost shut. But it looks more like a donkey from here, he said, leaning to the left. And I, like, this kid knows exactly what he's doing, right? He is taking care of his roommate, Harry. And he is trying to do it in a way where he's, like, not offending his teacher. He's trying to not be disrespectful to Trelawney. And is like, I see your point, but it's like, my eyes have to be closed. And then be like, this is so (laughs) ridiculous. If I tilt my head like this, it's a donkey. And I just, it brought me such joy. I hope we don't. Get a description of Harry's reaction to this observation. Yeah. But I can imagine if I were Harry, I would be filled with joy. I'd be like, thanks. Yeah, that actually, that's a, so dumb. That's actually a great point because we're we're talking mostly about like joy as an internal, like like an internal experience. But you can see certain characters in this chapter trying to foster joy in others. Yes. Right. You can see someone becoming isolated. Like Trelawney singles him out and he's already been singled out by the Slytherins. He's feeling very isolated at the school, an experience that he has a lot at Hogwarts, at least in these three books. And you can see Seamus's kind of wry Irish humor trying to, to foster connection with him again and try to tell him, like, you're not alone. We're here with you. Right. Which is exactly what the trio do when they go to Hagrid. Right. Yeah. It makes me think also just like what being isolated and losing joy means is paying attention to the wrong things, if that makes sense, right? Like, this isn't described in the chapter, or at least not described extensively, but I can guarantee that watching Harry fly around on Buckbeak is probably one of the greatest moments of joy in Hagrid's life to this point, <laughs> right? Yeah, and even in the totally. in that hut at that night, if you had asked him, what is one of the greatest moments of joy in your life? He would have said, seeing Harry fly around on Buckbeak's back, right? That, that would have totally filled him up right and it's kind of drawing attention to those things kind of diverting attention away from what he what Hagrid's feeling like is a failure towards this thing which really went really went well right and that's what that's what Seamus is doing here too he's kind of like yeah this odd teacher has predicted this thing for you but honestly like what does she know like I mean it's a really lovely way that Seamus is trying to restore some joy and get Harry to pay attention to the right things again or to different things in that in that moment yeah and I want to say, like, it doesn't work, right? Harry's right. responses, right. like, hey, can we all stop talking about when I'm going to die? Right. But I still think that it was worth Seamus trying. Yep. I remember once I, I was home with my family, and I don't remember what it was, but something bad had happened. And so I'd flown home. And because I flew home last minute, I almost never do this, but I, I splurged full price on a magazine off the rack knowing it's a scam that is so expensive. But I spent whatever, like $5 on a People magazine. And so when I was home, I was having everybody help me fill out the crossword at the back of the People magazine. And my mom was like, Vanessa, this is inappropriate. Like, this is a difficult situation. And my dad was like, no, she's trying to bring some joy. Let her. Yeah. And it wasn't like, working. Sure. <laughs> My dad was like, she's doing it badly, but he was touched by the fact that I was trying. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's important to note that what Seamus does and what the trio do, none of it really works. I think it just tells us something about just intuitively these folks know what's needed here is to build up relation. That's what's needed. We need to let these right. folks know they're not alone. When you feel alone, it's hard to be persuaded that you're not. And and I think we see that in this chapter as well. I just think that the the efforts, the intuitive efforts of these children tells us something about what joy is, which is something that has to do with relationship and sociality. And it does help a little, right? Yeah. Seamus's comment gets Harry to stand up for himself and be yeah. like, can we stop? Yep. And the kids going down a Haggard gets him to stick his head in some cold water and stop drinking, yep. right? Like, it doesn't work it does. all the way, yep. but it is like a little speed bump. Yeah. Like... You can imagine both of them continuing to spiral, and it at least slows down the spiraling. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Matt, we 
are back to our lovely practice of Lectio Divina, and you are tasked with picking a sentence for us today. What sentence do you have? Here is a sentence I've randomly picked. When Harry and Ron had had their teacups filled, they went back to their table and tried to drink the scalding tea quickly. So step one of Lectio Divina is where we talk about what is literally happening in the sentence. And so they are in Trelawney's classroom, and they've been instructed to drink this tea down to the dregs so that they can read their tea leaves. Yes, they are. They are attempting to follow the instructions of Trelawney by emptying their cup of tea so they can flip it upside down, drain it, and then read the tea leaves. Okay, Matt. So step two is what other stories from literature, from fiction, does this remind us of? So let me read the sentence again for us. When Harry and Ron had had their teacups filled, they went back to their table and tried to drink the scalding tea quickly. It reminds me of a show that I really like a lot that is very sad called Broadchurch, where Olivia Coleman and David Tennant play police partners, and they're investigating a crime together, and they go over to a victim's house, and he immediately starts asking the victim questions. And Olivia Coleman turns to him and says, how many times do I have to tell you? Tea first. And she goes into the kitchen of this victim, right? Like, she doesn't know where things are, and she just fills the kettle and turns on the kettle and looks for the tea. And I, I think about that line a lot, right? Like tea first, offer something first. It's just a really good rule and one that has stuck in my head. What about you, Matt? What does it make you think of? It reminds me of a movie I saw recently. I, I was on a flight in the last couple of days. And so I was scrolling through the movies that were available. And I saw this really classic movie that I'd never seen before called High Noon, which is a 1952 Western with like a, a whole cavalcade of stars like Gary Cooper, Lloyd Bridges, Lee Van Cleef, Grace Kelly, Lon Chaney. It was a pretty good movie. It wasn't great. I think maybe like it was so influential, it seemed like the story had been done before, but it actually was the first time that story had been told. So I, I think that's why I couldn't appreciate it as much. And without going too much into the plot, they're not doing a lot of kind of ceremonies tea drinking in <laughs> this Western town. Yeah. But there's a point at which Lloyd Bridges' character, Harvey Pell, you know, he wants to go confront Gary Cooper and he has a shot of whiskey and he has to drink it really quickly, right? He just, he just knocks it back. And I just, I just felt this association because there's obviously very cheap whiskey, feels hot, feels like it's scalding if you drink it really quickly. Yeah. And so the experience is similar, but also one of the things that's going on in High Noon is Gary Cooper, who's the town marshal, has been brought into this kind of suicidal gunfight that he kind of has to, to be involved in. And so, the whole film is kind of set up towards like, oh, this death that's been predicted and anticipated. And so, like, I think there's something wow. about like this drinking the hot beverage as a prelude to this climactic moment of what has been predicted as a certain death. Maybe that's what's making me have the association. I find that very compelling. Oh, good. So step three is we reflect on what this reminds us of in our own lives. And so I will read the sentence to you once more. When Harry and Ron had had their teacups filled, they went back to their table and tried to drink the scalding tea quickly. I mean, I drink a lot of tea and and coffee. I, I like hot beverages. And it makes me reflect that maybe one of the reasons I like hot beverages is that they cannot be consumed quickly. They demand that you take them slow. Otherwise, you will injure yourself. Like, they force me to slow down. Like, I think I have a tendency to move too fast, to not pay attention enough, or to, or to try to knock off tasks or whatever. And I know that I have some, maybe spiritual too strong a word, but, you know, why not use that word? Like, spiritual connection to, like, this kind of ritual practice I have of the way I make my coffee and the way I make my tea and when during the day I drink it. We went on a trip and I had to disrupt my whole tea drinking and coffee drinking routine. And it was, it was very disruptive. I mean, I had the caffeine I needed every day because I could get coffee or tea. But there's something just about the times during the day when I have my coffee and tea, when I have it and how I have it. It just forces me to stop and slow down and take some time which is what I need maybe as much as the caffeine, right? And and the fact that obviously Harry and Ron are rushing here, yeah, it makes me just think about how hot drinks <laughs> function in my own, in my own life. Mm -hmm. What does this make you think of in your life, Vanessa? So, you know, my grandmother, like a lot of people of my age's grandmothers, right, didn't throw away food ever. Like I am very attentive to food waste, but she like, 
didn't let it get in her way that it was 1999 and these were M&Ms from the 1984 Olympics. She was like, (laughs) these are going to be amazing. Eat them. (laughs) And it reminds me of the moments where my brothers and I looked at each other and all agreed to fake that what we were eating was edible Mm. and that we would find a way to dispose of it kindly. So Matt, our last up is what does this call you to? So when Harry and Ron had had their teacups filled, they went back to their table and tried to drink the scalding tea quickly. You know, I think just thinking about how coffee and tea and hot drinks work in my life, how they demand me to slow down, I think that I want to think about other things in my life that may have that demand upon me, but which which aren't coffee and tea. Like I I know that I use coffee and tea, or at least I've learned in this conversation that I use this kind of ritual drinking to slow myself down and to have some moments of slowness, it would be nice to apply some of those same habits and methods to other things in my life that that I usually rush through, like writing or like meetings or, or that kind of thing, meetings that, that matter to me, right? Like to like take <laughs> yeah. some time with them and give them the attention and time that they deserve. Because actually, if you do that, then they become nourishing and spirit filling and all those things. So I think that's what I'll, that's the lesson I'll take from these. Yeah. Vanessa, what is this calling you to in your life? Very similar. I, as I'm sure our listeners know, because I whine about it all the time, your wife contributed to me busting up my ankle a couple years ago. And I have started physical therapy, but my exercises are something that I try to get through really quickly. I'm like, okay, now it's physical therapy time. And I shouldn't, right? Because A, that's not how healing works. And B, I think it's, I should actually use it as an opportunity to slow down. Hmm. Yeah. Like I will try to listen to audio for, for work while doing it. You know, like I'm, I'm constantly trying to multitask while doing it. And I think that I just should take this as an invitation. I, I injured my ankle because I was rushing and multitasking. I was trying to text Colette while running down a flight of stairs and fell. And so I should probably yeah. not try to do that with my exercises now. Yeah. That's great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing that Lectio with me. I think that my ankle will heal quicker because I will work on that more slowly. Good. I, I hope for the full healing of your ankle in time. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Sam. Hi, Sacred Text team. My name is Sam, and I'm calling in response to Book 2, Chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin. At the beginning of the conversation, Vanessa posed a question about why is Harry so trusting of Tom in the Chamber of Secrets? And I think that the answer for me really lies in Harry seeing a lot of himself in Tom Riddle. Um, Hagrid's been accused by Tom, and Hagrid is really different from Harry in a lot of ways, where Tom Riddle is very similar to him. And I think through the memories of the diary, Harry really sees that. And even in later books, Dumbledore and Slughorn really draw parallels between Harry and Tom and their personality and their ambition. And I think that naturally a lot of us are really drawn to people who are very similar to us. I've had an experience recently where two of my mentors who um, are both very similar to me in many ways, we have the same career, work in the same um, environment, and are all three of us gay men, um, I was really drawn into both of them as mentors. And I've realized that one of them, their ethics and their morals really align with mine. And the other one, their ethics and the way that they treat people, um, I often find really problematic. And I was kind of naturally equally drawn into both of them. So I think that we need to be cautious when we're naturally drawn to people who are really similar to us um, and really think about if that attraction is because we are similar to that person in identities or if that's because we're similar to them in ethics and morals and values and we trust that person. Um, So yeah, thank you everyone um, at the Sacred Text team. You guys make my drives to work every day such a blessing. Thanks. Sam, thank you so much for that lovely voicemail and I'm glad to ride to work with you every day. I hope we have some nice views. I really love what you said. And it just made me reflect on how sometimes when someone is really similar to me, it makes me very happy. <laughs> like I met Ariana. She was also at Divinity School and she's also Jewish from Los Angeles, right? Like there is so exciting to meet someone so far away from home who, you know, we had so much in common. And sometimes someone is similar to me and it just annoys me. I'm like, shut up. We're not the same. <laughs> And I think that we see that with Harry, right? There's a point at which he's like, Tom, you and I are the same. Like, help. And then it's Voldemort. And he's like, we're not the same. And so I think that not only do we have to pay attention and be wary of when we find similarities exciting, but also when we find them repellent, why? Is it because the other person is Voldemort and deserves to, you know, have that feeling or is it because there's like self-loathing at the heart of that and it's not actually about them it's about us yeah thanks sam for this voice memo i too am glad to be a passenger on your commute each day i mean your voicemail i think reminds me of a conversation we had about charm in the last book about how we should think about why we are charmed from folks how charm works on some folks and not on others and what it is about the charm remember etymologically it has to do with the spell like what is the spell that is cast upon us by others and and you're absolutely right. Like, Voldemort is really good at this with certain folks. Tom Riddle is really good at casting the spell with certain folks. And I think you're right. I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you're right, Sam, that this there is a little bit of a spell being cast here. But also the example you gave from your own life is really illuminating and telling and useful for us to help think through how we might recognize the spells that are cast upon us and, and whether or not we want to be, be swayed to those spells. Now's the time when we remember those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Simon Neuland, 30, the love of our listener's life, a firefighter and animal lover. George Carlyle, 88, jokester, grandfather, and history buff. Herbert Strauss, 78, 
a survivor, grandfather, ally, and professor. Eric Anthematten, 43, our listener's wildest yet softest friend. Larry LaFond, 80, a husband, grandpa, and generous host. Roger and Marla Baikama, lost to COVID, 83 and 82, teachers, creatives, and people of faith. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Hermione Jean Granger for her skepticism. She is like, Harry, that wasn't a grim. I'm very skeptical of this whole class. And she just like brings that skepticism to McGonagall. And so I want to bless Hermione for some really well-deployed skepticism. I think that Trelawney is a more talented seer than than McGonagall and Hermione do, but I I really admire a young skeptic. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless? I'd like to bless McGonagall for reasons we've already mm. discussed in this episode, but I just think that she handles that moment in the classroom really well and that, you know, it's probably not the best thing to undermine your colleagues in a classroom, but if you can see a, a child in distress, it's probably also not the best thing to tell a child they're going to die in the upcoming year <laughs> and to do it every year right so i feel like this is a this is a good judgment call from mcgonagall where she yeah. sides with the students and the students know that she has their best interests at heart i think it's just i like it and i just like her tone in this in this chapter you know she turns into a cat and nobody pays attention and she's just like oh come on right I, it's good it's good stuff. that was awesome like you talked about early in this episode it makes me wish that that hagrid would go chat with mcgonagall because you know that mcgonagall understands and respects Hagrid in his own way and could help him put this in context without using kid gloves, you know, without just sort of pretending nothing went wrong. She'd tell him exactly what went wrong, but also why he ought not to worry about it, right? And that's exactly the kind of advice he needs. And I hope at some point he does does go and talk to McGonagall about it. Yeah. Matt, next week we are reading book three, chapter seven, The Boggart, through the theme of burnout. And we are going to be joined again by our wonderful friend, Jackson Bird to talk about that. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have some amazing perks over on Patreon. And if you want to stay up to date with all of the fun things that we are doing at Not Sorry, you can sign up at our newsletter at harrypottersacredtext.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producers are Ariana Nettleman. And we are edited and produced and coached by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Sam for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those whom you have loved and lost. you don't care about Pride and Prejudice like Ralph Waldo Emerson didn't. <laughs> he did care about it. That was the problem. He cared <laughs> the wrong direction about it. Too much. He cared too much. the wrong direction. Yep. Would rather have his indifference. <laughs> yes, that's true.